Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to instruct us through His inspired and inerrant Word this morning? God, our hearts are captivated by Your grace. We thank You for sending Christ that when we could not get to You, You came to us. Your Son, the Lord Jesus, met the just demands of Your holy law perfectly without flaw. He died the death that we deserved. And because of the salvation You accomplished for us through faith in His own beloved name, You've given us heaven. You've given us joy. You've given us hope. You've given us Your truth, which not only exposes Your greatness and Your majesty, but it goes into great detail as to what you expect of mere mortal man such as us. They are truths that are more desirable than gold, even than much fine gold. They are sweeter to us than honey or the storehouses of the honeycomb. Through your truth, you warn your servants through your truth that is kept in obedience, you reward your servant. Through your truth, you teach us how to live lives to the glory of Christ and how to put off sin and put on righteousness for the glory of our King. Aid us in this endeavor for your eternal glory, we ask. Amen. As we are opening in our Bibles to our third and final study of Psalm 19, Psalm 19 is such a rich chapter of Scripture. We've gone from general revelation, which introduces God, constantly narrating His glory, to special revelation, which introduces the saving God of the Bible, providing us a clear and an objective message of who God is, what He expects. And as we've moved from the first few verses of general revelation to special revelation, that which God has written down in Holy Scripture, we want to just focus on the message of Scripture and its main benefit in exposing sin that it might be covered by Christ. The incarnate Word. It's remarkable. We were originally going to spend a couple of weeks studying Psalm 19, but in God's providence, uh, we've spent another week and we find ourselves in the message on sinners' response to the Word on a week where we have the Lord's table. What a great picture which should be informed by our study of Scripture. So we're looking today at more of the inner workings of the Word in personal experience. As it penetrates and as it percolates and as it produces Christ-likeness in those that have responded to the saving message of the Gospel. So we want to look at the Word of God and the child of God. I guess you might say that there's a presupposition to today's sermon 
Since it's only the redeemed that love His Word, it's only the redeemed that respond in obedient faith. We're looking at it from the lens of those that, that the Lord has brought near to Himself. We recognize that as the law reveals the holiness of God, it not only exalts God in His unique holiness, but it also exposes the depravity of the human heart. First half a dozen verses of Psalm 19 teach us that creation shows God's glory. Verses 7 through 12, we see the excellency of the divine law. We've looked at its perfections uh, last week. And now David's response is he prays for grace to do that law. We had said that uh, general revelation, when people... Look at creation, and as the sun radiates across the sky, it exposes everyone to an elementary introductory knowledge of God. They know there's a creator God, but that knowledge cannot save them. There must be the preaching of the gospel that comes through the Word of God. It's special revelation that, provide, that uh, reveals God's provision from man's need of salvation and forgiveness of sin. And one of the illustrations that I thought of as we uh, gather on the 497th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, there's a guy who shares the same birthday as my wife, and that man is Martin Luther, who was born on November 10th, 1483. He was raised by a father who groomed him to be a lawyer, a mom who was a pious yet superstitious Roman Catholic. It wasn't until Martin Luther was 21 years old that he was caught in a thunderstorm and knocked to the ground by a lightning bolt. And he was so fearful for his salvation, he cried to the Catholic patroness of minors, Help me, Saint Anna, and I will become a monk. That was his vow that he made that day. Two weeks later, on his quest to find acceptance with God, he entered the most rigorous and austere of seven monasteries in Erfurt, Germany, the Augustinian Order of Friars. Martin Luther is a picture of grace. He's a picture of the psalmist as the psalm and begs for God's grace for, for his sin to be covered at, where man deals honestly with his sinfulness that it might be covered by Christ. Though we don't set Martin Luther up on a pedestal, he's got his own faults and his foibles from persecuting Anabaptists to believing in state religion to uh, a plethora of other baggage which we won't name from the pulpit this morning. We've got our own baggage that we ought to concentrate on. But this was a man who was driven. He was obsessed to find salvation, but it was a salvation through his own efforts. By his own testimony, excuse me, by his own testimony, he said, I wearied myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other rigorous works to acquire righteousness by my works. 
1507, he was ordained to the priesthood. And as he started practicing in this religion, he was awestruck at transubstantiation, which is, in, in Catholicism, what that teaches is that the, the uh, cracker and the juice actually become the body and blood of Jesus. And he says, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. He was wondering, who am I, sinful man, to actually address holy God and to handle holy God? How can I speak to living, eternal, and true God? And so holy terror crushed him. He knew that a holy God demanded moral perfection, so he was driven to confessing, sometimes for up to hours in the confessional. He was disillusioned by the corruption in the Roman church, especially by the sale of indulgences. And to give you just a quick five-second history lesson, if you're not familiar with, with uh, what indulgences were, so that they could build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, they would sell indulgences. And uh, one of the most renowned was Tetzel. And you may, have, you may re- recall the famous saying that would say that as, as coins in the coffer did ring, souls from purgatory did spring. It would hasten their time there. In October 31st, 1519, 497 days from this past Friday, is when this father of the Protestant Reformation nailed 95 theses to the castle church at Wittenberg, proposing a public debate in regards to the sale of indulgences. How can we sell salvation? Debate me if you will. This was a man who was driven about salvation, but uh, he was trying to work through how can this be attained. And in his own recounting of, uh, of his testimony of salvation, this brewing firestorm, Luther came to a dramatic breakthrough. As he was tortured in his soul, he became focused on Romans chapter 1 in verse number 17, which says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Previous to him mulling over or meditating on that one verse of Scripture, he had understood the righteousness of God mentioned in this verse as meaning his, God's active avenging justice that punishes sinners out of His presence in hell. And he admitted that he hated that. Here was a monk who hated God's revealed truth that he punishes sinners in his righteousness. But while he was sitting in the tower of the castle church in Wittenberg, Luther meditated on that text and he meditated on that one verse, wrestling with it. What does it mean that the just shall live by faith? He said, I didn't love, 
Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly. This is the guy who professed to serve God, the same God that he hated. He says, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And said, if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the the Mosaic law, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with His righteousness and wrath, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience." You might say that this gray cloud followed Luther throughout his experience. But suddenly, as though a ray of divine light had shone into his darkened heart, Luther finally grasped the true meaning of the text. What God means by what He says that the just shall live by faith. That the righteousness of God that we sang about in one of those choruses in our song service this morning. That the righteousness of God is received as a gift by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. And to that was, was what, he, here's what he confessed. He said, at last, by the sheer mercy of God meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There... I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther finally got it. Given endless days throughout eternity, he could never work on his way to heaven, work up enough righteousness to merit God's favor. And in this dramatic conversion, Luther came to realize sinful man is not saved by his good works. Rather, the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to sinners on the basis of faith alone. This is what Luther would call uh, a, uh, a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness, something from outside of us, not from within inside us. This is the Reformation doctrine, sola fide, only by faith alone can a sinner be justified and be credited with the very perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, we come to Psalm 19. We look at creation all around us. It tells us there's a Creator God. Somebody preaches the gospel through the message of the Word of God and you are saved, you begin a process of sanctification, being conformed to God's truth. How do we experience the Word? 
Look at, uh, we'll, let's start to gain our context in verse number 7, and then we'll concentrate in the last uh, few verses of the chapter. But in Psalm 19, verse 7, we are told in the perfections, the excellencies of the Word, in all these synonymous terms that God's law is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And because of those perfections, those excellencies, notice the psalmist's response to that law. He says they are they're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's only the testimony of the redeemed. He says, moreover, by them your servants warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. And notice his doxological prayer at the end. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Last week... We saw the psalmist express gratitude objectively by focusing on the attributes of the Word. So we see the characteristics and the work of the Word, but notice the application to the servant as we continue our study today. His gratitude expressed subjectively by concentrating on appreciation of the Word in verses 9 and following. We'll, we'll see this, this enduring nature of the Word. Just two thoughts under this, this subjective appreciation for the Word. It's nature and it's nurture. Let's start with the nature of the Word, verses 9 and 10. We, we didn't get to finish all uh, six noun, synonymous nouns for God's law. Notice this fifth title for the Word that David gives us. He says... The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This is the only place in which fear is used synonymously for the Word of God, emphasizing our proper response to His Word. This is a product of revelation. That as we begin to study Scripture and understand Scripture, we're led to the fear of God. If people would just consult it and learn to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, ministries would be deeper and less shallow. Not so trivial, but substantial and weighty. And as David states the truth positively, it's also a negative warning. That if, it's, if, if, if he says that the fear of the Lord, equating it with the Word of God, is... What is clean, if we look outside the Word, we're looking to pestilence, in other words. It's a warning that those, those that don't have a respect for the Word deceive themselves. They follow delusions, vanity. And one very clear takeaway is that Scripture is our worship manual. 
So what in God's name is taking place in a lot of churches that we call worship? It's not worship. God's Word sets the agenda. God's Word exposes who He is. God's Word sets the manner in which He can be rightly approached. It produces reverence, godly reverence, which is so missing in the church of Jesus Christ today. The only proper response to God's law is fear or reverence. Think of all the passages of Scripture that would add weight to that. The passages that reveal God's otherness, God's holiness, and His awesome judgments. The habit of the human soul is to worship. And so we're either going to be responding to idols of our own hearts or responding to Him as He demands and is worthy. Scripture informs who He is and how He is to be worshipped. It is His worship manual. It leads those who read it to reverence Him, holding Him in strict awe. I don't know how many of you use uh, devotionals alongside your Bibles for your uh, personal devotions, but if, if, you've, if you get one from uh, the Institute for Creation Research, uh, Days of Praise in God's Providence, Friday's devotional was on that, this one minor point here of the text, the fear of the Lord. You might be sitting in the pew wondering, there's a disconnect. It seems to be a paradox, this fear of the Lord. On, on one hand, we are told that we haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption by which we address God as Abba Father, right? But on the other hand, we're told to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. So do we fear, do we not fear? Yes. We're to be walking in the fear of the Lord. It's clear that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, the instruction of wisdom are found in the fear of the Lord. To unpack what God means by what He says about Himself and what He expects of us. It can only be found in Scripture, in special written revelation. We must learn to fear our God. And you notice the adjective that uh, the psalmist uses about the fear of the Lord, the proper response to the word. Is, it's clean. Having no impurity, no filthiness, no defilement or imperfections, Scripture is flawless. It is the unadulterated truth without error. When, when Jesus in His high priestly prayer prays for His followers, sanctify them in Thy truth, Thy Word is truth. It is unadulterated truth. That is why the psalmist could exclaim earlier in the Psalms, in Psalm 12, in verse 6, I think we had referred to it last week, we're told in, in Psalm 12, 6, that the words of the Lord, they're pure words. 
They're pure as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You ever studied smelting? Do it up to seven times, you get the purest of the pure. And he says, my word tops that. It's flawless. No blemish, no fault are found within. The fear of the Lord is clean and it's enduring forever. The Bible's never going to pass away. It's, it's God's sure word that never needs to be amended. It never needs to be updated. And editors, it doesn't need to be edited, does it? It's a perfect document. This distinguishes the law of God from all the doctrines of men, which are full of blemishes, full of faults, needing constant editing and re-editing. But this will always remain permanently relevant and eternally true. You know, if sin kills, but the Word lasts forever, and it slays sin, as the psalmist continues to meditate on the perfections of the law of the Lord, we've said that Psalm 119 expands in more words, more synonyms, more adjectives, more nouns to describe this multi-orbed truth of written revelation. And in Psalm 119, as he reflects upon what this pure, unadulterated truth accomplishes, he says in verse 9, First of all, starts off with a great question. How can a young man keep his way pure? God, how can I be made pure? How can I be made like you? Good question. Glad he answers it. By keeping it according to your word. God's word, pure, unblemished, flawless as it is, is what slays sin. We wonder why life is such a mess. Well, how much are we in the Word and taking the Word to bear upon the issues of life? Psalmist continues in 119 and verse number 11, Your Word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the more truth intake there is, the more of the cesspool of my depravity it dissipates. The more truth I've hidden in my heart the less I'll be tripped up. I will be led by that which is the lamp unto my feet, the light unto my path. He says in verse 38 of Psalm 119, Lord, would you establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you? That's a prayer that ought to be on our prayer sheets, ever up to date. Lord, establish your word in your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Lord, I don't reverence you like I ought. Take your word, drive it deep into my soul that it might produce this response, this fearful reverence, that which endures forever, not that which slays. You know, he uses a six, back in Psalm 19, a sixth title for the word. After he says that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, Notice that parallel statement in verse 9. The judgments. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. 
Maybe your translation reads ordinances. The Hebrew word mishpat. This is loving legislation. A verdict from the judge of the universe. It is ultimate. It is final. It is both that which is precious as well as that which is palatable. So these aren't rules without relationship, beloved. These are the Father's house rules for kingdom kids like you and I. And the legislation that our Father meets out, they're not unruly. These judgments are true and righteous altogether. Notice how he says that uh, they're, uh, they are palatable. If gold is good, fine gold is better, and much fine gold the best, yet God's Word is better than the best and more desired. It's the highest, the most excellent treasure to be had. So, beloved, what are you passionate about? Are you passionate about the Word of God, the judgments of God? What we are passionate about will show in how we spend our time and, and what the priorities of life are. And let's be, just be honest and confess we don't esteem the law like we ought. We don't fear it like we ought, as it deserves, especially as you prefer, uh, don't always prefer it to all the riches of the world. So there, there needs to be change. It, it's, it's that which helps us change. It reorients, uh, we need to reorient life around the Word. His law brings abiding pleasure. His, his Word brings joy and contentment and blessedness and protection. So we need to love it. We need to delight in it. We need to be allured by its sweetness. May it be deeply fixed upon our individual hearts. So we saw in our study of the perfections of the Word, that verses 7 through 9, that it's perfect. Verse 10, that it's precious. But notice verses 11 through 14, it's powerful. This leads us into that second point. We mentioned the nature of the Word, but how about the nurture of the Word as we get into verse 11? Moreover, or in addition, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. What's the word do? It rebukes sin. Verses 11 through 14 seem to be the spiritual counterpart to verse 6. Remember when we learned about uh, the sun? And as it takes its circuit from one end of the heavens to the other, the end of verse 6, he said, there's nothing hidden from its heat in creation revelation. But in special revelation, the Word, there's nothing hidden from it as well. You know, it's that which can diagnose and uh, presumptuous sins. It equips us to be acquitted of great transgression. And nothing hidden. Nothing hidden. It's the two-edged sword that penetrates, as the writer of Hebrews says. We'll, we'll look at that shortly in our Scripture readings. So as the psalmist progresses from the cosmic to the social order, he would be remiss to not round out Psalm 19 with a reference to the individual. David, the petitioner. 
as He has illuminated and admonished. That's why we're looking at, at our response, this subjective appreciation of a Yahweh worshiper. As you think about the nurture of the Word, notice these two accomplishments, how it nurtures us. He says that, uh, number one, that, that we're admonished, we're warned. Mark that down in your mind or in your bulletin. We're warned. By them, your servant is warned. It rebukes sin. Under the light of the law, the psalmist says, I can, I can discern flaws which are undetectable by the human will alone. And since I gave uh, Luther his uh, limelight in, uh, on Reformation Sunday, how about we go to one of the other reformers, Calvin? I don't get a chance to read his commentaries very much, but in uh, Calvin's commentary here on Psalm 19, he, he translated this term worn, Zahar, as made circumspect. Made circumspect, which signifies to teach or to be on your guard. The believer is taught. The believer is warned. So if it's only by God's law that we are warned, that is to say ignorance of God's law or not enough time in the law leads to the contrast of that. Foolishness, an unruly life, haphazardness, waywardness. So the psalmist brings it into sharp focus through very personal statements in these latter verses a very real forgiveness of hidden sin, verse 12, presumptuous sins, 13, the first part of the verse, and great transgression, the latter part of verse 13. So it admonishes us, it tells us what's out of bounds. You claim to follow Yahweh, stay away. It warns us. It's the roadblock sign. Danger ahead. But it doesn't just admonish us. There's not just admonishment, but adherence. As we walk in lockstep and barrel in obedience to the Word, there's reward to be had. God blesses obedience. In keeping them, we find reward. There might be an aspect of present reward that's in focus here of vision and power and an enlargement of soul, an uncondemning conscience knowing that we're honoring Christ because we're honoring His Word. It promises undeserved liberality. It doesn't, it's not in words of justice. This is where God lavishes His grace. That's why the psalmist valued the law of God. They're more precious than anything. They're the greatest possession, verse 10. The greatest pleasure and protector, verse 11. And the greatest provider and purifier, verse 12. And so as he introduces how the the Word answers the matter of life in a sin-cursed world and our sin-sick souls, he shifts gear immediately and cries, who can understand his errors? There's, there's a lot of uh, debate with commentators. They think that uh, you know, the, the latter part of Psalm 19 is just kind of uh, hit and miss, a helter-skelter, not connected real well. I think it connects perfectly. 
That's the right question from the psalmist. Who can understand his errors? Because he moves right from great reward, abundant reward given by the Father to abundant transgression. That's where we live. So it doesn't just expose who our God is, but it unhinges us. And it exposes who we are, sinners in light of a holy God. So who can discern his errors, he asks, verse 12. I guess this third point of the, of the text, if we looked at point one last week and point two today, we could say it this way, implicationally or applicationally, the psalmist concludes by concentrated on the application of the word, verses 12 through 14. Knowing as Luther that our hope is not placed in our merit, but by the working of God, who can discern his errors as if we were left to ourselves without inscripturated revelation, we would not discern our errors. It is only God's Word that can acquit us of hidden faults that can show us what presumptuous sins are, what principles should rule over our souls that we be blameless, lest, on the other hand, we be acquitted of abundant transgressions. Calvin, in his commentary, said it, it may be objected that this commendation, in keeping of thy commandments there's great reward, is in vain ascribed to the law, seeing it's without effect. The answer is easy, namely that in the covenant of adoption there is included the free pardon of sins upon which depends the imputation of righteousness. God bestows a recompense upon the works of His people, although in point of justice it is not due to them. When God promises in the law to those who perfectly obey it, true believers obtain by His gracious liberality and fatherly goodness inasmuch as He accepts for perfect righteousness their holy desires and earnest endeavors to obey. I believe that the psalmist in, in, in one degree is, is addressing the, the issue of sanctification. Okay, so who lives the Christian life? You or God? Well, yes is the right answer. It's a, it's a both and, not an either, an, an either or. We are constrained by the law to flee for refuge to the mercy of God when we trip up. It reveals our sin, but it also is the one that reveals our Savior through His thorn-crowned brow on our behalf. If we were to look at two applications from the psalmist here in these verses, I think, first of all, the psalmist says, being in the Word exposes sin of the child of God, pushing him to prayer. None of his own merits... But the, the more of abundance of sins that the Scriptures reveal in our lives pushes us into His presence. 
It was the Mosaic Law which made these inner distinctions between sins, leaving no sin condoned. We're guilty not just of one or two sins, but sins innumerable. We bewail our depravity, don't we? Yet a fault might be hidden. It's hidden not because it is too small to see, but because it is too characteristic to register. We get calloused. I'm so glad for some of the saints of God that come along and, and uh, give us tools as we're reading. Uh, people like Jerry Bridges and his book, Respectable Sins. I, I don't know if you've read it, but I commend it to you for your own sanctification, beloved. It's subtitled, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. It, is, it was written to comfort or, or excuse me, to confront the disappearance of sin's malignancy in our own estimation. Sins that we just tolerate as part of our humanness, part of our experience. Sins of anxiety and frustration or discontentment or unthankfulness or selfishness or perfectionism or the list goes on of those acceptable sins that we learn to accept. You remember in Numbers 15, if you wanted to jot down verses 27 through 31, it was there in the Mosaic Law where outward triviality of the incident is what underlines the gravity. God, God looked at the, at the motives of the heart at why people did what they did. There was a, uh, a Jewish admonition along this line. In Ecclesiasticus uh, chapter 5, this, the rabbi said, Do not say I sinned and what happened to me. Do not be so confident of atonement that you add sin to sin like the libertine would do. That there is no law. The law of the Lord is what exposes my sin that I might confess it and turn from it and to my Savior. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, not a man knows the hundredth part of his sin. We don't know the hundredth part of our sin. You know, when we come to the Lord's table, we don't come through our innate worthiness. We come through the uh, credited worthiness of Christ. But we don't come with a cavalier attitude. Not like an uncondemned conscience. We, we, we come without that condemning conscience, but not like one who thinks they can go to the confessional to be absolved, who thinks that he's done all that's required. I mentioned a few sins that came to mind. When we look at our life before our glorification, there is much joy in the journey, knowing Christ, forgiveness of sin, but if we're real honest in letting the Word unpack the depravity of our own souls, there is a, a, a soberness, or you might even say a sadness that characterizes the Christian life. It's like, where's the sin ever going to stop? Because we find ourselves with Paul in Romans 7, what I don't want to do, I do. I don't do what I want to do. That war. 
And it's only the law of God that exposes it that we might come to God, run into His presence for restoration. But it doesn't just reveal sin, it restrains sin. Notice how he moves on. He asks the question, verse 12, who can discern his errors, equip me of hidden faults? But in his prayer, he says, Lord, would you keep back your servant from presumptuous sins? Let them not rule over me, that I might be blameless. If we said, first of all, the psalmist is telling us that being in the Word exposes sin in the child and pushes us to prayer, pushes us towards the Lord then being in the Word also confirms salvation of the child of God, propelling us to praise. The psalm ends not on a note of avoiding sin, but on that of offering back to God the mind's fitting response to His own words, a a pure sacrifice. When, When you see how the psalmist ends it, Lord, I don't want to live here in this life of sin. I don't want to be accused of presumptuous sin. I want, I want your word to expose it all. But let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be that which pleases you. That word acceptable is a term often found in sacrificial texts of the Old Testament. God is addressed not as the sinner's accuser or judge, but notice how he replies. This is, again, this is only the believer who would say that the law of God that decimates me is sweeter than honey. Why? Because it pushes us into the Lord's presence for restoration. And he recognizes his God as a rock. The one who he had fled to for deliverance. That word redeemer, maybe your translation renders it champion or redeemer. This term is used by Job when he says, uh, in the midst of all the turmoils that he was experiencing in Job 19.25, I know that my redeemer lives. My deliverer. My go-between. You know, there's a rush of, uh, of metaphors that uh, the psalmist uses as he, as he relives, as he, as he writes down God's revelation, reflects upon how God has been that, that rock and that redeemer. I bet you when he, when he identifies God as my rock, he's probably reliving his escapes and his victories and, and probing what it was like to be hid in the cleft of the rock in 1 Samuel 23 from Saul's view when Saul was headed to take his life. God protected him. God was his stronghold, his fortress, his cave of Adalam where David first formed his band of outlaws a refuge in many crises, a place of many memories. But he doesn't just address God as his rock, God as his redeemer, but I as your servant. Back in verse 13, as he's, as he's praying, to offering this as a prayer to the Lord, keep back your servant one who has been brought near, one who belongs to you by covenant. 
The goal of all Scripture is to reveal God and to reveal us. It strips us bare in our sin and exposes our sin. It shows us our Savior, the one whose very perfections and righteousness have been credited us through faith in His name. Psalm 19 conveys broad, rich views on God's law, the Torah, teaching us where God's truth is paramount, God is paramount. God is glorified. He's glorified to the extent that our individual lives, our corporate lives, the church, are word-driven. Never sell short the power of the word to convict, the power of the word to change, to transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. You know, as we look back through church history and we see how God rescued His gospel that had been held captive for a thousand years. People like the Luthers and the Calvins and the Zwinglies, these are just tools in His hand. And I love how Luther in his humble exclamation as people said, well, what, was, what caused the mounting success of the Reformation? You know, was it your tractates? Was it your journals that you didn't know your students were going to actually publish and cause, stir up even more trouble than you were intending on having? Luther responds with unwavering confidence in God's Word. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. Why do we get to celebrate the Word of God and the, God, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ as a, as a response of the Protestant Reformation because the Reformation was based, it was founded on Scripture alone, so it could not be stopped. It could not be stopped. So the psalmist says, Scripture warns us. Scripture rewards us. One uh, commentator in trying to teach us how to pray through the Psalms wrote it this way. He said, quote, Observance of those laws will give light to eyes confused by lurid billboards and TV screens. It will refresh souls dumbed by soulless sex, will prove more valuable than anything that gold can buy, will taste far sweeter than honey, including sweethearts called honey, who are readily discarded whenever a more delicious flavor comes along. These positive effects of the observance of these laws will be obtained because they protect the soul. When the sudden onrush of temptation leaves no room for the mind to make lengthy reflections on the long-term benefits of doing the right thing. So might we commit it to memory. Might we commit to its study. Might we commit to its application in obedient living. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us a tool of nature, all of creation that testifies of your existence, that we can utilize that in our evangelism. We simply introduce them to the saving God of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for even sending the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus, that to look upon was to look upon your face. He exegeted the Father. He was perfect God and perfect man, the God-man. Lord, we look to you as our rock because you are our deliverer. You are the one who came near to set sinners such as us free from our sin through faith in you and you alone. We know that all of Scripture points to and is the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you continue your Spirit's work of exposing sin, exposing our ever-moment need for your revelation, your message in our lives of who you are and how you will conform us to your image? We thank you that it exalts us in worship of the provision that you have made through Christ. And as yet another Sunday, we partake of the Lord's table. Might it not be through rote ritual, but out of amazement of hearts that have been captivated by the Word of God and the Gospel and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Extract worship from us as we begin more and more to understand your truth and do your truth. Be glorified in your church as we proclaim your truth in preaching and teaching and biblical counseling. Unleash us to leave lives, lead lives that are equipped completely to lead lives of your glory. We're amazed that you would condescend to speak in a human language, writing a human book that is inspired by you. That you would use mortal man to pen your message. Help us to breathe deeply gospel air. And as we learn more about Christ, be driven to worship, praise, adoration, and grateful service. Cause our response in the Lord's table to be of utmost gratitude. And as we fellowship in our fellowship dinner, might it be to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds, we pray in the matchless name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.